0: gathering. to make Children, the Yelding here. It's that time of the year again, the one you're all so very fond of, the spookiest thing imaginable, the onset of daylight savings time. But you know, time is a funny concept, and in between spending hours adjusting all my ship's clocks manually and blowing up the local White Castle for refusing my special order, I wondered to myself, what would it be like to live forever? After all, a galaxy-famous tyrant like me always leaves a mark. But ruling until the end of time? That sounds like the perfect way to ensure my grip on the cosmos, and also to finally witness the completion of the Berserk manga. So I had my computer give me some material to research, specifically an anime on the matter. I have a legion of crack scientists at my disposal who in theory could finally give the Grim Reaper the middle finger on my behalf. But why do that when anime has proved itself to be a reliable authority on all things scientific, like... Black holes, dark magic, and how high school transfers students its own sexual orientation. Thus, my computer recommended me Rin, Daughters of Minute... M, Mi- 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 yeah, Yes, that's right. Daughters of memes. Anyway... Rin is a six-episode, century-spanning show that, in an alternate milk-and-honey universe, would be about intimacy, ageing, the nature of man, technology, and how time changes all of these and can harden your heart. But that's not what you get. And instead, the anime is all about hardening something else entirely. It's not safe for work, for home, or even watching on a deserted island by yourself. It's also not safe to be handled without protective gear or a set of extendable tongs. Consider yourselves warned, humans, except when it comes to my impending bombardment of your puny- wa- Wait, where was I? Sorry, got off track there. So, episode one, and we get introduced to the opening, which is a glorious orchestral piece, swallowing brass and concerto to truly infuse the show with the grandiosity it deserves. Sounds delightful, no? So our episode opens in 1990 with a naked woman with green hair and impossibly styled bangs being pursued across a rooftop by some nameless assassin who then guns her down and kicks her down to street level. For a proposed Counter-Strike mod, it's rather unimpressive and I'm disappointed the show opens with a counter-terrorist winning. It's not fair, I say! Cuts to after this and Rin is in an office, doing just fine save for a headache. We meet her assistant Mimi here, who responds to Rin's request for water with a bottle of vodka, in the same way that I respond to pleas for mercy from intergalactic governments with planetary destruction, or possibly sending them copies of Psychic Wars on VHS. But enough about that. Rin, as it turns out, is a private investigator and is hired to find a missing cat. But this leads us to finding the true pussy of the show, Koki Mano. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have gotten you involved. It's just... It's just what? Well, for some reason, I just had this feeling you'd be able to help me. Now, I'm no pharmacologist, but I suspect Cokie's voice actor might be inhaling ketamine by the bucket load. Possibly. Uh, Cokie, you see, has no memories and asks Rin to find out who he is, leading her to seek information in the vagina of an information broker. What? You thought hacking the likes of Interpol or the CIA would be the best way of getting intelligence. After this, Rin and Koki infiltrate what I originally thought was the Nakatomi Corporation, because they end up stuck in the vents for Die Hard. That is until Rin's butt proves too large to slip under a set of security lasers. Both are captured, and while Koki gets tortured by Hand Job, Rin is made into a pincushion by a lady named Sayara. This unfortunate session of torture meets pop-up pirate involves piercings and metal shards, filling Rin with so many that she would trigger the airport metal detectors in another country entirely. Rin is taken to the morgue due to her nasty case of the death, but like the common cold, you can just take a quick nap and walk it off. She wakes in the building's Morgan soon. It turns out it's not Nakatobi that they're in, but the Umbrella Corporation. Sayara has been searching for the secret of immortality and is admittedly a bit taken aback by seeing Rin alive again. But in her spare time, when she's not wearing a maid outfit as business casual or doing body mod work for Marilyn Manson, she's also raising the dead, so I'm not quite clear on why she's surprised about this. After Lesia gets eaten by the zombies, Rin and Koki escape. Turns out he's a clone, and the zombies were failed cloning experiments, which is a bit odd given they seem more alive than he does. He asks to work at the agency, and that pretty much concludes episode one. So in all, we've learned what the show is about. Egregious violence towards women who cannot die. Glorious, no! Episode two takes place one year later, and it's all about finding a stamp. Now, this is the riveting anime entertainment we live for right here, folks. After a bunch of hijinks involving a professor guy, many gruesome murders by a serial killer, and that crazy counter-terrorist Laura reappearing and killing Rin with a claymore minecom sports bra, we cut to Koki. He meets a random lady named Yuki who is looking for an angel who knows where her missing brother Shogo has gone. A riddle that seems to answer itself, no? Koki then finds Rim regenerating from her wounds in a back alley, the only person to do so despite the mile long trail of blood she left behind in the street. Back at the agency, Mimi exposits to Koki about the immortal women and the time fruits that give them this power, explaining pretty much 90% of the mythology behind the anime, which is fantastic! I absolutely would not want a show about a private investigator solving the mystery of how she became immortal or how long she's been alive for. Soon enough, though, we learn that Shogo, the serial killer, and the angel are one and the same, a point Koki never brought up with Mimi because he's as dense as concrete and as much for drag. Angels, we learn, are what men turn into when a time through enters their bodies, which gives them wings and some enhanced physical properties. But that's not all. Immortal women in the presence of an angel gain an uncontrollable desire to mate with them, while the angels wish to devour their flesh. Certainly not attributes you would put on a Tinder profile. Long story short, Rin kills Shogo and we meet Apos, a.k.a. Not Gilgamesh from Fate Stay Night, who teleports him randomly to twirl his metaphorical moustache and make himself known as the series villain. And so episode 2 ends. Now the anime has truly doubled down, not only on violence against women, but also rape. After all, it's clear from how Rin reacts to Shogo that while her body wants to cut past second base and every base thereafter, she actually really doesn't want to in her head. This is consistent throughout the show for all the immortal women, and were it not for the angels eating the women instead of, well... Let's just say that Xyvox the Unyelding might destroy planets to kill time on Sundays, and generally I treat raising cities to the ground as an opportunity to get a new high score, but I at least have the excuse that I am a villainous despot who makes the Cyclos look like amateurs. Whoever wrote this show is a whole different kind of evil, a repulsive kind. Bah, I say, enough of this moralising, there's more of this show to discuss. Episode 3 swings forward to 2011, and despite having the personality and general activity level of a Chinese panda, Koki has married Yuki, and they have a young son together. Meanwhile, Rin meets a lady who utters some cryptic nonsense and then dies, which is probably a blessing given that the show tends to do with its female characters. She got off lightly is all I'm saying. Rin later discovers that the lady was suffering from a disease called Higan, or Hygen, which originates from Death Island, or Disneyland. Note to self, take youngest Sanna for summer holiday. Sounds like a blast. Uh, Oh, don't mind me, sorry. I just occasionally get distracted. But anyway, Rin ends up captured and taken to this deaf island, which leaves Mimi and Koki to pick up her trail. In order to do so, Mimi visits the information broker Rin slept with in the previous episode, and the anime hits a wonderful high note here, with Mimi degrading herself by sleeping with the broker to get info on Rin's whereabouts, with Koki begrudgingly watching the boot. Mimi protests not to watch throughout the entire scene, and it even capsules this with a delightful shower scene of her, or rather, her butt. Questions of taste and decency aside, this moment leads me to think that the writer is so obsessed with lesbian sex that he'd only ever play scissors in a game of Janken. Meanwhile, back on Death Island, body-modern living-dead enthusiast Sayara is back and hunting Rim for sport in the jungle, not realising that, if it bleeds, we can kill it, doesn't really apply to either of them, since they're, well, immortal. Sarah's plan is to deliver the Grey Death to Walton Simon's I, Sorry, I, I mean to use a tanker to deploy the Hegan virus and wipe out all of humanity, which is completely different, am I right? Koki takes a helicopter out to sea and intercepts the tanker using Mimi's info, and in attempting to save Rin, he unfortunately gets used for target practice. But wait... Taking inspiration from a Popeye's tactical use of spinach, he consumes Shogo's time fruit, which Rin had retrieved in the previous episode had given to him, and in doing so turns into an angel. He takes Rigg to safety in his last moments of sanity and then attempts to devour Sayara back on the tanker, but Doc Gilgamesh appears and takes both of their time fruits, killing them immediately. At least Koki's death wasn't in vain, saving someone who can't die, and for a man whose identity as a clone nearly led him to committing suicide in the first episode, it's only at the end with Rin that he once again brings it up as the most relevant thing to his character ever, despite it being mentioned all of twice. Was anything of value lost though, I wonder? Well, yes, the tanker! A biological weapon of mass destruction that effective is not cheap, I tell you. Episode 4 is set in 2025, and two things have changed in that time. The Matrix is real, and an earthquake has left Japan in a spot of bother. And while the earthquake is just a drop in the ocean as far as the show is concerned, we get introduced to our reverse red pillar, Teruki, as he engages in some plug-and-play with a virtual lady named Ruon, after which he offers to meet her in real life. And would you know it, he does. But like all dreams about meeting your waifu in the real world, it is dashed almost immediately after Ruon is murdered. He ends up meeting Rin and company and asking them to investigate this crazy mystery. But that crazy cyborg lady Laura is back and turns Rin into a 5.56mm pincushion right in front of Taruki's eyes. If Rin then explaining her immortality to Taruki strikes you as déjà vu, you're doubly right since Taruki is actually Koki's son and he shares his father's genetic trait of being generally useless. Mimi discovers that Ruan is based upon the deceased daughter of Katsuyuki Kamiyama, someone who really should have known better than immortalising his dead child as a virtual sex toy. The military don't take kindly to Mimi's hacking of this information and Taruki is resultantly kidnapped. Rin and Mimi piece together that the murdered Ruon Taruki saw was actually an android, and it turns out she's not dreaming of electric sheep, but instead of keeping Taruki all to herself as she attempts to fly him out of the country to parts unknown. Rin finds out which plane Taruki is on and gets on board. Kamiyama is there too, but I guess he plans to select Baywatch as the in-flight movie, because Ruon does him a favour and shoots him dead right there and then. Rin rescues Taruki and a fight breaks out between her and Ruon. Hmm, an immortal woman and a terrible Dorothy Hayes knockoff. Who wins? Well, the answer is... Jet engine! After pushing Taruki out of the plane with a parachute, but not imitating true anime greatness by shooting him in Freefall, the scuffle between Rin and Ruon ends up with them being sucked into one of the jet engines and turned into strawberry jam. Delicious! And with that, Episode 4 closes out with Mimi leaving, Taruki finding Rin's office bulldozed to the ground, and the audience still clueless on how this connects to the wider plot. Episode 5 is set in 2055, and the digital and real worlds are now seamless, so you can download things like clothes, food, but sadly not a rebooted version of this show that's actually halfway decent. Rin is alive, but she has amnesia, Mimi is a nun, and Taruki is a successful businessman, the one-two-three punch of great leaps this show takes. Not Gilgamesh is also still skulking around, having disguised Laura's Rin to hunt immortals for their time fruits, because he's too goddamn lazy to do it for himself, and is also presumably awaiting the next Holy Grail war to start. Taruki now has a daughter, Michio, who is introduced in her underwear and yet somehow retains the most dignity of any character in this show. Rin's boss is murdered by Laura, which catches Michio's attention, and she starts to quote Sherlock Holmes, thus ensuring between this show and Stephen Moffat that Arthur Conan Doyle's corpse will forever barrel roll in his grave. Michio and some clueless Burke friend of hers follow Rin to a restaurant where she is proposed to by someone who vaguely looks like a cross between Count Dracula and Tony Stark. She turns this down on accounts for Amnesia, but changes her mind back at their apartment later before deciding to begin some prenuptial, shall we say. But like any good slasher film, no consensual heterosexual sex is allowed, and Laura appears dressed as Santa Claus and guns the two down, presumably taking inspiration from Futurama. Rin revives with her memories restored and escapes with a watching Mishio, and they then meet Taruki again after which they travel to Mimi's nannery which was earlier featured as the scene of an orgy between Mimi and other immortal women. Absolutely disgraceful behaviour I say since Mimi is wearing the garb of a Christian nun, but is supposedly in a Buddhist temple. Utterly implausible. However, Mimi's nannery has already been attacked by Laura and a group of angels with Rin and Michio arriving too late to ensure they both also died in the onslaught. Curses! After dispatching the Angels, Rain goes outside to find Mimi tied to a rock and be raped by not Gilgamesh. Ah. Look, Xyvox the An destroys planets, enslaves thousands, and is ranked only second on Time magazine's Worst Heads of State 2017. But even Xyvox finds this behaviour repugnant. Not just not Gilgamesh's, but that of the show's creators. Why is this rape scene here? What purpose does it serve? If it's to make not Gilgamesh come across as the villain and someone we should dislike, it's rather lazy and redundant. True villainy is creative, like the time I murdered my third uncle to remove him from succession to the throne by bombing him with giant cans of raid. Poor fool never knew what hit him, but at least his home smelt pine fresh afterwards. I'm just saying you can do better than that. Not Gilgamesh also turns out to be a hermaphrodite, and as he's immortal, he has both the traits of an immortal woman and an angel. This incapacitates Rin and allows him to take her time through, turning her to ash. Well, overall, a short series leaves a lot to be desired and was a bit shit all told, but still. Oh wait, there's one more episode! Damn it, blast it! Episode 6 picks up hours after Rin's supposed death, but no, she's alive and well in a castle at the base of Yggdrasil, the source of the time fruits, although to me it looks like something spawned in Satan's greenhouse. Rin is locked in a room with a masked angel whom she kills, but turns out to be her fiancé from earlier. It's almost as nasty as my last honeymoon, but to be fair, that's because I was staring at mar lago Rin escapes and searches the castle, which looks suspiciously like Gondor, but she has no signal fire to call for aid with. Mimi and Michio manage to find Tajima Mori, also a Tony Stark meets Dracula lookalike, who is the guardian of Yggdrasil and Not Gilgamesh's father. He takes them to Not Gilgamesh's Not Gondor castle. Laura, meanwhile, returns and has the upper hand on Rin once again, but Not Gilgamesh intervenes and offs her, leaving just her handroid head which can still talk. I guess she was built by Weyland Yutani. No matter, for things even go more batshit silly from here. Turns out Tajima Mori is Rin's millennia-old flame, and after some fast-forwarded inner monologue to tell rather than show their eternal relationship, the two get horizontal. Not Gilgamesh doesn't take kindly to this, though, and commits some patricide, finally revealing a common ground between myself and him. Turns out Not Gilgamesh wants to consume Rin's time fruit to absorb her centuries worth of memories, having been cultivating it over the course of the show. And in order to do so, he plans to push her into Yggdrasil itself to be absorbed into it, although he might have been better off checking her MySpace page. He does so though, and Michio tries to intervene but only succeeds in giving Rin Koki's time fruit, which she had unwittingly brought with her, finally making Koki useful many decades after he actually kicked the bucket! With the help of Koki's spirits, Rin breaks free, becomes the new guardian of Yggdrasil, pushes not Gilgamesh into the trees to it, and now reveals that she is also pregnant. The anime closes with the trio discussing for the future, along with the scariest thing of all, Rin's incredibly ugly baby. I'm an insectoid creature of a thousand voracious mouths, and I was still cuter than that little troglodyte, I swear. And thus concludes Rin, daughters of mnemonics. What have we learned then, children? Not much, I'm afraid. The animation is bland, the violence is tepid, and the sex is in very bad taste indeed. I find human mating disgusting at the best of times, but even I cannot ignore the context in which all this happens to the likes of Rin and Mimi. Certainly one could class the show as exploitation, but there are better out there. Ninja Scroll immediately sticks to mind, with superior action, violence, gore, and also the winning attributes of being much shorter in length. Sure, that film features a rape scene too, but it actually ties into the arcs of the characters a little bit. Plus, the guy doing it is cleaved in half, leaving him with a splitting headache instead of the audience when it comes to Rind or... Uh, mi- mi- fuck it! I'm disappointed though. I learned nothing about attaining immortality. I suppose I'll have to watch Highlander next then, if only for Sean Connery's silky smooth voice. But since it's Halloween, I suppose I'll settle for true horror. Computer! Fire up the grand pain inducer and strap me in tight! Lord Xivox, you do realise that the last time you used the GPI that you ended up in a coma for 5 weeks and lost 30% of your brain mass? It's fine! You only used 10% of your brain anyway! That applies to humans, not you, and has been widely debunked. Although in your case... What did you say? Nothing. I shall prepare the GPI. Are you ready, Lord Zylox? Do it! Do it! I can wait no longer! Commencing playback. The Care Bears live in a magic place called Caramel.